Got a little delay with that, so we're going to re-kick that off and get going. All right. As we were in Mark 11 last week, one of the important things that I didn't want to gloss over was, once again, as I say, sometimes it's not so much the question as it is the purpose for the question. And that question that those administrative chiefs asked Jesus, by what authority he does these things, it, it tells you a lot about the times. And the times are very similar to the world today. By what authority do you do these things? You see, there are people that are asking today, who are these in authority and what is it? And by what authority is it that they are doing the things that they are doing? And that's not an insignificant thing that I did not want us to gloss over per se. Um, they're not insignificant, as I say. And um, I'm intending to really strike us at the very core of our flawed conditioning. Because by what authority do any one of us engage in telling somebody, oh, well, the shot is, is, is not a vaccine. Um, it provides no protection or any of those other things. And it, so I'm using a little bit of a modern occurrence, a modern event, to try to get us thinking about that question because in Jesus' day, the question was, by what authority did you do that? Let's go back to Mark chapter 11. And we're going to go a little bit earlier in the record. Because we could ask, well, was it because he healed Bartimaeus' blindness in Mark chapter 10? Or that he rode into Jerusalem on a colt while the people threw down their garments shouting Hosanna in the highest? Or was it the next day when he was hungry and he spoke to a fig tree and, and ultimately cursed it? Well, answer the question. It wasn't any of those. Those certainly must have raised the question of authority. But I'll tell you what got the chief priests. It was verse 15. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations? a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The scribes and the chief priests heard it, and they thought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when he was come, he went out of the city, and the morning, and in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter, calling to remember it, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig which thou cursed is withered away. 
And I'll stop there for right now. <clears throat> Again, I have to apologize. My voice is a little bit uh, uh, scratchy this evening, and uh, I apologize if anything is not coming through as clear as I need for it to. But I didn't want to delay this message and just uh, do something else this evening due to my, my condition. But um, this is a very important thing, the money changers. You see, this goes to a message that I did several months ago where I pointed out how that temple at Jerusalem had become basically nothing more than a money-changing op uh, operation uh, you know, uh, uh, controlled and organized by the highest levels of the priesthood of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so what we are seeing here is this is where the authority really gets them, is they have never seen anybody come in and take these money changers' tables and turn them over. And as I said, when we look in America, and certainly the world over, wherever Christian nations have developed, wherever this money usury system has entered into the, um, the financial arrangements and economics of those nations, it has provided a chokehold and a stranglehold on the society. It has siphoned all of the profits off and put them in the hands of a few. And so this is not insignificant either, but this is where that authority really gets challenged, and this is where he is really um, putting them to the task, so to speak, on what it is and why it is that he does these things that he does, and it's a threat to them. As I said last week, if we were to take these money changers and so forth that have risen up in our midst, in our Christian nations, that are practicing usury upon our people, and we were to seize those assets, those accounts, and everything else, uh, you could imagine they would wonder by what authority this is being done. And they would scream and demand and say that this is unconstitutional or whatever you know, uh, they would try to, to use to, to claim that it was, it was unauthorized authority. But this is the actual true biblical authority that we're talking about. Christ's authority is an authority like no other. But that is an authority that he also passed to us and gave to us. And that's the purpose for getting into this and revisiting Romans 13 after we began the introduction last week and open the door, so to speak, to an understanding about authority. We've looked at the Greek words of authority in the scripture. We've looked at this specific scripture here and where the word authority was used, by what authority, so that we could begin to analyze what it is that we're actually wanting to understand regarding that word authority. Because wherever that word authority is also used in Scripture, in the New Testament, we want to make sure that we understand it in the same vein that it was being used here in Mark 11, because it is exousia as we went over. So I wanted to start with that, and 
um, not gloss over that because we didn't really touch on that. And, and, and of course, to take one scripture, we always recognize that it has to be in context. And this is the true context of what was going on as he had turned over those money changer tables and uh, cast them out, essentially, scourged them out with a whip. But the whole biblical record is God showing, teaching, encouraging, inspiring, <coughs> excuse me, all right as i said i've got a little bit of a scratchiness here and i apologize but i did still want to bring this message to us tonight since we had started it last week so bear with me but anyhow you know he's he, the biblical record god is showing us He's teaching us, he's encouraging, he's inspiring us, and lovingly demanding that we do according to his will. And when we turned to 1 Timothy 6.15 last week, um, to, to learn again from 6.15 what we learned, I want to take us to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. And then I'm going to proceed on from there. In 1 Timothy 2.1, we are told to exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. So once again, here again, we see the word that, authority is used and this is a segue right to Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 8 so uh, another scripture that I could say that we could go to too would be 1 Peter 2:13. so just make note of that and perhaps we'll be able to come back to that but as I was going over those various scriptures last week, we want to remember that Matthew 9, 2 to 8, and the King James uses power, but it means exousia. Verse 7, the same thing, and multitudes marveled at the authority. So we could, use, we could see power being used in the New Testament, meaning exousia. We have to look at that Greek word. And as I say, one other thing about Matthew 28, 18 to 20, when we went to the Great Commission, so if all authority, all exousia in heaven was given to Christ, and he delegated that authority in that scripture, was it to baptize only? No. It was teaching them to observe all things whatsoever that he had commanded, and until the end of the world. And I didn't point out that the word world there is aeon, and it should be age again until unto the end of the age. Uh, so just wanted to kind of cover a couple points from last week so that there's no confusion because the word world, you know, gets put into people's minds as, as being something that 
it should not be, and so we have to make sure that it gets referenced correctly as the Greek word of age. Um, so again, authority. It's a legal term, as we've seen. The word authorities in our Bibles in the New Testament is also number 1849, exousia, in passages such as 1 Peter 3.22, uh, which uses both power and authority, and Matthew 7.29, and Matthew 8.9, Matthew 21 and 23, verses 24 and 27 also, and any parallel passages in Mark and Luke. Also in John 5.27, and Acts 9.14, and Acts 26.10 and 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 2 Corinthians 10, 8, and Revelation 13, 2. So I wanted to recap a couple of those things first. And when we're in 1 Timothy 6, 15, 14 to 16, where Paul conveys to Timothy, Well, I apologize. I haven't been doing that all evening, but for some reason as I start talking, you know, that has a tendency to make your voice hoarse and makes you want to cough. So I apologize, like I said. All right. So in 1 Timothy 6, 14 to 16, where Paul is conveying to Timothy, who is the blessed and only potentate? That dunastes, number 14, 13, dunastes from 1411, uh, Dunamis. The only potentate that Paul is talking about to Timothy is Jesus. There is no other potentate. There is no other authority greater. And many people might say, yeah, we get that. We understand that. Okay, but wait a minute. Do we really understand if we are under the headship of Christ, if we are under his headship, and he has told us in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, in the Great Commission, that he has given that authority to those Christians there that he spoke to and those of us who intend to follow in his steps and be the disciples that we want to be, then we have that same authority. So again, whether you use the New American Standard, which uses sovereign, you use the NIV, which uses ruler. It doesn't matter. We have to go to the legislative intent and the legislative history of the word because the word in the original doesn't change. This power or this dunastes is the power or the force of the might is Christ's power. It's his force. It's him, his might of the sovereign king of kings. And this is the only dunamis or dynastes, power, which Paul is speaking of. All power is that which resides or emanates from the King of Kings, Christ the Redeemer. It follows, therefore, when Paul uses this word in Romans 13, it would be the same intent of use, and it is. So, now let's get into Romans chapter 13, verse 1. And I put up in the chat um, a link to Bible Hub with Romans 13, chapter 1. 
uh, Romans 13, verse 1. So anybody can do this just by typing that verse in. And once you type the verse in, you hit the Strong's button, and it will give you the entire Strong's words for every word in the passage. And so that link is in the chat. <coughs> so in Romans 13, verse 1, the first thing you have, the first word, is everyone. That word is pasa. It means, uh, number 3956, it means all, the whole, every kind including all the forms of declension, apparently a primary word, all, any, every, the whole. So the first part of that definition is all, the whole, every kind of. So when the word is everyone, it is the whole, all, the whole, everyone. Then the next word is psyche, it's actually 5590, and it's from Sucho, P-S-U-C-H-O. It means breath, i.e. spirit, abstractly or concretely. So <clears throat> what you have here is, um, I'll, I'll go through this whole thing at the end, and we'll basically lay it out again in layperson's language as we've gone through the definitions. But what we've got here is breath. So in every word, in other words, the whole of all breathing, all who breathe, every kind who breathe, and that's the essence of what's being said when the word everyone is translated in our English Bibles. Then the next phrase is um, uh, must submit himself. This word is 5293 that's used here, and it's translated by our Bibles as must submit himself. It's from hupo and tasso, to subordinate, reflexively to obey. So what we have here is everyone, every living breath, everyone breathing, all who breathe, are to subordinate, are to obey. And then the phrase that's used in our Bibles is to the governing authorities. I want to I back up for a second here because what that, when you go into those definitions a little deeper, you see that hypotesitheo, number 5293, is a verb. And it actually means All right, I had to hit the cough button there again. Um, it actually means to place or rank under. I found that very interesting that it was described that way. To subject. Hupo is 5259, meaning under, and Tasso is number 5021, 
meaning to arrange properly. To arrange properly. So in other words, hypothesis, tesisail, tesisil, number 5293, is to be placed in rank under or to be arranged properly under. So I hope you're getting a sense of what that is doing to the passage rather than just the phrase that we have, which is, must submit himself. I think it's a big difference to be placed in rank under or to be in subject under is a little bit different than submitting himself. And I'll try to expand on that as we go along. Then the next word that we have is Strong's number um, uh, uh, 1849, which is exousia. It means power to act, authority, and it's from 1537, which means out from, which intensifies, and 1510, which is imi, E-I-M-I, and that means exactly I me, or I exist, I am as you would find in John 8, 58, uh, John 14, 6, and my note on Revelation, I have Revelation 4, 3, it looks like. I crowded the edge of my page there, uh, my notes, but I, I think that's probably right. So again, Exousia, number 1849, the power to act, the authority to act, out from, which intensifies from the I am. So I hope you're getting a sense of how this scripture is looking now in comparison to what we've been taught. Now, Pastor Wyland has done a great job in the past years. I uh, wrote a book entitled uh, Ecclesia versus Church because the word church should not be in the scripture at all. It should have been Ecclesia, which means called. Um, or assembly. <clears throat> so um, the point here is that in this uh, part of the passage, it's important for us to recognize that the word makeup there is to, uh, the verb, let me say this, the verb form of this was also interesting, and that's what I would probably want to correct myself and say that the actual verb form of this is number 5242, and it means to excel, surpass, or be superior. So, in other words, this exousia, this authority, surpasses, or this authority excels all other and is in superior to it, to all other authority. So you have not only the verb understanding of usage of exousia, you have the noun usage of exousia. 
give me a second here. All right. Again, my apologies for that. I'm real scratchy and real rough here, but um, all right, now, the next word that we see in this, after submit himself, which is hypotasitho, and then to the governing authorities, that whole phrase is one word, exousius. So we have to look at exousius as both the noun and look at it as a verb, as used there. So in other words, what I'm trying to convey to you is just because our Bible has to the governing authorities, that is not correct in terms of the Greek words used. So as we gave both the noun and the verb form of that. I'm going to go on now to the next word. <clears throat> As I said, when you look at the verb part of that, uh, to excel, surpass, be superior from Hooper and Hecho, to hold oneself above or uh, in superior superiority, that's a very important part of that scripture. And it shouldn't just be, it's not reflected at all. To the governing authorities, does not reflect what the exousia or the authority is that's superior. And as Pastor Weiland had said in his uh, book, also trying to point out that the church and ecclesia, the church should have never been translated, it should have been ecclesia. When I delivered this message, you know, uh, Pastor Ted had said that he had gleaned a couple of really good nuggets from this that he, you know, hadn't seen himself or whatever, and that's what we want to do. We want to be able to glean the nuggets from this, be able to share it with one another so that we have a proper understanding of what's happening and in the Word, and then why it is that we're in the condition that we're in and don't seem to have the authority to act when all authority has been given to us. Now, the next word, as I say, is four, and that simply is gar, number, number 1063. It's a primary part of, uh, particle, uh, participle, uh, assigning a reason. <clears throat> so that's very understandable. Four is assigning a, a reason. So in other words, what is the reason that Paul is assigning this statement to? Four and then the next word is, there is. And there is, is Esten. It is number 1510. And it is, I am. Exist. So, for I am, exists. That's as simple as it is. But yet, the... The Bible that we have has had been translated to say, for there is. No, 
it should be for I am exists. The first person singular present indicative, a prolonged form of a primary and defective verb. I exist. I hope this is making sense. As I say, in the chat, if you're on the computer, you can look uh, in the chat. I have basically the page for Bible Hub, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. And this is the only one that we're going to go through because it's the only one we need to go through. The rest of it falls into place. So after Esten, translated there is for us, the next word is no. Um, and uh, that is uh, number 3756, O-U, and uh, simply means no. No, so uh, ex the next word is authority, exousia. And, of course, we went over both the noun form and the verb form. So there's no authority or power or designated jurisdiction or delegation of any authority or any conferred power other than from the great I am. And the next word is accept. Uh, translated except, it's E-I, Strong's Greek, 1487, a primary, uh, simply meaning if, if, a primary particle, <coughs> excuse me, conditionality, if, whether, that, etc. If, no authority, except, uh, they use except, if, whether, that, or conditionality. It's conditionality of, of what's to come, come next. Uh, the word that comes next is M-E, as in me, Strong's Greek 3361, meaning not, lest, a primary particle of qualified negation, not, also. So those two words, except, uh, except the translated word except was derived at between the Strong's Greek 1487 and the Strong's Greek 3361. If in uh, the first part of that and not lest or uh, whether in as far as an adverb. Um, so that's the word, how they derive the word except there. Now, the next phrase or, or words that you have is that which is from. That which is from. It's actually hypo, Strong's Greek 5259. It's a primary preposition such as under. An uh, example of place or with verbs of place, underneath, or below, or as in time, when. And of course, the translation is accept that which is from God. And uh, uh, that word 
except I had another note on that. I just wanted to look and make sure I covered that. Um, all right, I think I did. And typo. Okay. Um, and that which is from Hupo hypo number 5259, a primary preposition equal to under authority. Theo number 23, can uh, they they oh number twenty three sixteen sixteen is equal to theos or God, <clears throat> and then the next word is the authorities that exist. The authorities that that Strong's Greek thirty five eighty eight the definite article including the feminine he the neuter to and all their inflections the definite article, the. And they use the word that. So the scripture again would read in these last four or five words, except that which is from God that exists. And the next word, uh, Strong's 1510, is uh, I am, the great I am, again, I exist, the existent one. And it's comprised of another word, a Greek 1510, E-I-S-I-N, I am, I exist. So again, first person, no matter which was used there, it's the same. Um, and then the next phrase of words is, have been appointed. Strong's Greek number 5021 is and Greek 5021, a prolonged form of a primary verb to arrange in an orderly manner, i.e. assign or dispose. <coughs> and the next word, by, or hypo, Strong's Greek 5259, placed underneath where, you know, in again, primary preposition, preposition, under, place of, or with. So, and then, by, by God, uh, the last word, fail again, 2316. So, when you take all of that definition and you lay it out for yourself and you read the scripture as it would have been in the Greek, you have that it's not exactly the way the translators translated it. Now, am I to say, well, you know, some might say, well, who are you, Doug? You're no Greek scholar. You're exactly right. I'm not. But I can read those words and I can read those definitions. And I can understand why some may intend, when translating, to translate certain words and certain phrases, uh, especially when you're making the translation for a king, and especially when there's an interest in you translating it in such a way so as to not allow 
for the understanding to bloom that that king is under that authority. Now, Christians will say, well, we know that they're under that authority of God. But as I said last week, in America, and we have now, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We have now uh, put this out all over the world, this constitutional framework. And this constitutional framework then, uh, that's, that's, you know, pretty much all over the globe now, um, the idea is that we elect our representatives. But as I said last week, haven't you ever scratched your head and found yourself, wait, 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 let me just read this from the King James again. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is from God. The authorities that exist have been appointed by God. Well, that's put a clear impression in my mind that all the authorities that have ever existed, since God has always been in charge, those authorities would be appointed by God, according to that scripture. But didn't we as Christians, or even America's Constitutional Republic, scratch our head and say, well, wait a minute. What authorizes us to vote for these authorities? And what do we do with these authorities that we vote for and put in positions of authority do not do what is within the will of God for the rest of the citizenry. So this not, is a very not serious... only that, Doug. Can you hear me? Go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Not only that, you can see where if you follow this to its to its conclusion, we would have to send a letter of apology to England. It's... Sure. And, and tell them that, that that Revolutionary War was wrong. Yeah, we, we were disobedient to God. So it's really quite hypocritical then, isn't it, Russell? Absolutely. We're not willing to say, hey, King, you were, you were, we were wrong, and so therefore we repent of that wrong. You are still our king. Because exactly. these authorities so, were these author, these authorities were put here by God, and you were the king, um, obviously put here by God. So yeah, there has so to be. Give him a get out of jail. <laughs> Go ahead. Give him a get out of jail card for the rest of their lives. <laughs> yeah, right. So as. Ted Wyland pointed out in his book, he said that Romans 13 has nothing whatsoever to do. We, we, many of us who came through the Patriot ranks, you know, 40 years ago, and understood, began to understand that Romans 13 was certainly not the way the churches were teaching it, number one, but then we also sort of bastardized it ourselves a little bit because we didn't fully get into the Greek. 
And I suppose you know there's lots of reasons for that. We have a lot more tools at our disposal today than we used to have. Um, we may have had a strong concordance. We may have had a Greek lexicon or Thayer's or anything else, but we didn't maybe take the time or maybe we didn't have those books. Pastors certainly should have because they'd gone to school for it and so forth, and they should have had those basic textbooks in their arsenal to be able to have taught correctly. So when we had been taught through the Patriot ranks that essentially we were taught correctly, there is no power but of God. We, we understood this. It resonated with us. We said, yeah, God is the authority. But then as Patriots, we didn't make that recognition that says, well, wait a minute, why are we voting for people? And that had to happen or it would be hypocritical of us in that, in that fashion. So now that we've gone through this first passage of Romans 13.1, this is what it actually reads like. Everyone, meaning all the whole, every breathing soul, <clears throat> is ranked under, is in subjection to, or is under, or arranged in subjection with power to act or authority out from I am to act superior to all other for I am exists. There is no power. There is no delegation of authority. There is no designated jurisdiction except under the authority of God or in subjection to him. That is not difficult to understand. So why then are we not in subjection to him? Because we the people decided that we would draft the Constitution in 1789 quite different from the Connecticut Resolves of 1639 and others in the 1600s, the colonial period of Christians who wanted to be in subjection under the authority of Jesus Christ as they came here for the advancement of the Christian faith. And as I said in my America's Constitutional Idolatry series, Thomas Jefferson himself even sought to rewrite the Virginia Criminal Code and wrote things into it that are quite contrary to the law of God. However, in 1639, the colonists, and up through 1789, they, in Virginia as well, adopted as their criminal code the entire biblical record as their criminal code. So if they needed to consult for a legislative history <coughs> excuse me, of a crime, they would simply consult the legislative history in the Bible. And if they needed the legislative intent of a, a criminal statute in the Bible, they would only need to square it with the legislative history written in the Bible. So 
Paul's legislative intent conveys nothing different than the legislative history of the entire scriptural record, which is conveyed. And I simply ask, as you go through those words, and, and I'm not asking you to believe anything that I tell you, I'm asking you to go through those words and you look at those definitions and ask, did Doug take any liberty in reading that passage? Everyone, all the whole, all breathing soul, souls, are ranked under, are in subjection to, or under, or arranged in subjection with, power to act, and authority out from I am. Isn't this the biblical record of what he taught the Israelites? He said, do not worry about the face of man, for the judgment is mine. So when we carry out the authority in the statute regarding murder, regarding other crimes that are death penalty offenses, when we are acting upon that power, that authority, out from the great I am, we are in subjection, arranged in subjection, under that authority. That's exactly what he was teaching the Israelites to do. He said, I've got this creation. I created it for you to inhabit. Here's some people that are not living in accordance with my will. I want to use you, Abraham. I want to make a multitude of nations out of you. I want to work with you. I want to work in and through your seed and your posterity to bring my creation into line with the authority that I want it to be the moral authority that I want for it, that it must be in aligned with. And he spent those years showing him, showing them, the Israelites, how that is to be done and to be carried out. And then when they didn't carry it out, and they ultimately sinned against him, fornicating against God himself, he divorced them, cast them off, gave them a bill of divorcement, and there was no way they could be reunited with their former husband in marriage, which is what Paul tells us. So Paul's legislative intent, as I say, it conveys nothing different than the legislative history of the scriptural record. And I do not believe that I've taken any unwarranted liberty with the original meaning of the Greek in Paul's epistle here to the Romans, nor any license against the translators. I clearly understand why you would translate must submit himself to the governing authorities when it's nowhere in the word. The word is exousia. The whole phrase to the governing authority is comprised in one word, exousia, Strong's Greek, 1549. And we've gone over it. 
And as I say, that whole phrase, again, to the governing authorities, has two words tied to it. Exousius, 1849, and hypercuseus. <coughs> Hold on. All right. Um, Lord, so those did you two... find a double witness to that Romans 13? Uh, yeah, I would say First uh, Peter 2, I think it is. First um, Peter 2.13. Um, it's the same... Uh, phraseology used by Peter. Uh, frankly, let's let's turn over there since you've asked, and I think that that's uh, a second uh, witness to the same. Second um, Peter. I had Second Peter uh, in my notes, but I don't have the whole scripture, so I'm going to turn over there. Uh, no, First Peter. I'm sorry, First Peter. First Peter two and verse thirteen. Now, this is again one of these things that we can't gloss over the context of the passage. Um, you know, which probably at least begins at verse nine. You, so Peter is speaking to those and said, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people. Why were they not a people? They were not a people because they had been cast off and divorced, and as far as God was concerned, they were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy. They did not obtain mercy. They were divorced, and nobody can understand how they could ever be reunited with God. He said he would be a God to them forever. How can you divorce us, God? Because uh, uh, the law of God says a divorced woman cannot go back to her former husband after she's gone and been with another. But if her former husband be dead, she is free from the law and can be joined to another. So they had not obtained mercy, but now they have obtained mercy. How had they obtained mercy? They had obtained mercy because God, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, his only begotten son, he laid down his life, became dead, buried, and raised himself on the third day to become that new husband to Israel once again. And that's the only way that she could be freed from that law, <clears throat> the law of divorce was that the former husband be dead. <coughs> so anyhow, 
I'll continue on because I'm getting to verse 13. Um, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, meaning nations, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, be, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So once again, in the context here of 13 and 14, we're submitting ourselves to the ordinances because the ordinances of the men are who? They are these people, the chosen generation. They're still supposed to be abiding in the will of the Father in accordance with his laws, statutes, and judgments. We're not saved by works of the law. We do the works of the law. I don't even like to say that because people get so confused on it. We do the will of God, which is his law, statutes, and judgments, his commands which he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, those ten commandments have statutes and judgments all throughout the five books of the, of the law. Genesis through um, um, Deuteronomy. So, submitting ourselves to every ordinance of man, and, and, and again, if we were to take First Peter, I did not do that, but if we were to take First Peter 2.13 and punch that in, um, somebody may be ahead of me on that already and decided to do that. Uh, let's see, one... All right, so I get that there, and I immediately just push the Strong's button on Bible Hub. Submit yourself. This is another one of these things. I am in 1 Peter 2.13. <clears throat> Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. I don't know if any of you guys are looking this up. So we have in our Bibles, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. And see, right away I spoke as if I knew what words should be in this passage. And you guys all should have seen, or at least hear now, but those words are not in that <laughs> passage. Yeah, those are not in that passage. Submit yourselves is the first word. It's hypotagiti, tagiti, hypotagiti, Strong's Greek 5293 from Hupo and Tasso. Where did we hear Hupo and Tasso before? Uh-huh, Romans 13. Reflexively to obey. Uh, the next word is for the, it's ton, T-O-N, Strong's Greek 3588, 
the, the definite article, including the feminine and the neuter in all their infections, the definite article, the. Submit or subordinate for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. So in my King James Bible, it says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Is that in the scripture? I'm reading you, mm-hmm. the, I'm reading you from Strong's the, the words that are in that scripture. Submit yourselves, hypotagate, 5293, for the, which is ton, Greek 3588, and then the next word is Lord's. So we have <clears throat> between submit yourselves, the word to, the word every, the word ordinance, the word of, and the word man, and the word for, uh, back up and not the word for. So we have one, two, three, four, five words that aren't even in the original Greek and change the entire essence of that passage. On purpose. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yes, it is. So instead of us having the authority to act <clears throat> under the authority of God, and we do not have to worry about the face of man, and we were also instructed by Christ, don't you even worry about those that kill the body you worry about he who can kill both body and soul. Now, that is a very powerful, powerful message to Christians the world over. <clears throat> but if you're going to teach the Christians, submit everyone to an ordinance of man, and again, like I say, my apologies. I began to speak as if I knew what words were in that scripture because I'm reading from that Bible. But we know better, and we know that we have to actually look these words up to know what it is that we're speaking about. And yes. far be it from me to be the one to mislead when the book itself is already misleading. What did he say about anybody who adds or takes away from this book, from this record? This is changing the legislative history. This is changing the legislative intent of the record. And so when I have a man ask me, well, how did all this go wrong? And I try to say it's because they took over the seminaries. Not only did they take over the seminaries, we have the words right here at our own disposal and we don't read them, we continue to read what's in, you know, right there. What, what, what license did I take in this scripture right here? My King James says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme. This um, derivation, or whatever you want to call it, of First Peter 2.13, simply punched into Bible HUD, when the verse is up, I hit the Strong's bucket button right above it, and it gives me Strong's lexicon. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Uh, the word uh, human 
is <clears throat> is anthropine number 442 belonging to humans especially as contrasted with god as contrasted with the divine from anthropos human uh and then the word institution so we know the legislative history is we don't submit ourselves to every human institution in the way we understand those words because the midwives did not submit to the decree that came from the pharaoh that said when these israelites deliver you shall kill every male uh, born they did not do it the institution was uh, the the wheat was supposed to go to the midianites Uh, and Gideon was hiding it. Uh, we can go on and on. These these decrees from men, if they are, as Rich said last week, all you've got to do is look at the entire record of the book of Acts and Jesus' testimony himself that tells us he did not obey every human institution well Doug if when you're reading it doesn't resonate in your mind you get the feeling that something's wrong don't you you're exactly right yes exactly right and that's why we as Christians sit here we're just we can't understand why this is just keeps going on and stuff and we look at this wickedness going on around us and our our core our being which is what he's written on our hearts he's written that law on our hearts that's what he told us i've got a new law here and that law is written in your hearts he said and Mm -hmm. so we sit here and we know all this is wrong we know all this is evil but yet our churches have taught us that we're supposed to obey every institution and it doesn't make sense when you have churches standing up against those that say well you must wear a mask or you must you know uh uh stay six feet apart in the church and everything else and they're going no no we have the right to continue to worship god according to the dictates of our conscience but there's a there's a hypocrisy there and they can't use their first amendment right they have to go with their their right that existed far in advance of that just because we're engaged in a civil society or whatever as a group of people doesn't mean that we checked god out at the door i realize we've done a pretty doggone good job of checking him out at the door because of the decrees of men and so this is what i found in in terms of this romans 13 1 and now first peter 2 13 um this is you know what we keep seeing over and over and over and over again 
And, and as I say, Russell, just as you said, our, our hearts see all this evil and we don't see any way out of it. And yet we have the authority. We have to exercise that authority. And it does not matter that if we go before the king's court and we exercise that authority, which far supersedes, we have the legislative history of it, the legislative intent of it, but we have to be able to articulate that in the court. And that still does not mean that the court will not say off with his head. But the reason that they turned the world upside down was because they had everybody believing it. We haven't even got our own people to believe this yet. We're still believing whatever the church burps out at us and tells us that we're supposed to do. And then when they turn around and say, well, we're not going to obey that mask mandate, we're supposed to not scratch our head and say, well, huh, wait, what do, what do you mean? I thought we're supposed to obey all the authorities. They've put us in this spot and ourselves because we are supposed to study to show ourselves approved. So, if one fears God, he does what's right in God's eyes, not man's. Matthew ten twenty eight, Luke twelve five. As I said, the midwives in Exodus one, Daniel in Daniel six, Moses' parents in Hebrew eleven twenty three, Paul in Second Corinthians eleven thirty two and three, Peter and the apostles throughout the book of Acts. We ought to obey God rather than man. Don't forget Jesus' parents. Yeah, yeah. That's a really Jesus big one. Parents. Yep. And so we've now we received need to get some out biblical... Yep. We've received some, or reviewed some basic biblical precedents of power and authority. And what we've learned is that there's power in the spoken word of God, power in the gift of the Holy Spirit, and power in the word. And this power is not of our own might, it's not of our own strength, it's not of our own ability, but it's from God. And that's why I say to each of us, no matter what happens to you in the next months ahead or anything else, of all the things, of all the wicked that we see happening, Remain true and confess him. Because whatever happens to you here and whatever departure you have from your family and friends and so forth here, it does not matter. What matters is that you stayed the course to the end. Whether they line us up and put bullets in our head, 
whether they line us up and bulldoze us in a pit, whether they put us in camps. I don't want to think about those possibilities. I would rather that we took the authority. I would rather that Christians could learn this fast and they could exercise that authority. And in unison, as the 12 apostles did, and all of those 3,000 and the multitudes after that laid down in that watery grave of baptism and went out and did likewise in teaching and professing the true authority, then we'd be in a lot better, we'd be in a lot better position. And we have the authority. I'm sorry, go ahead. All right, I guess Russell is just uh, talking to somebody in the uh... Yeah, and uh, you're correct, Melissa. That means if they're doing it in accordance to the Father, absolutely, absolutely correct. Authority is either given or granted. But a legal term is delegated authority. And authority granted to the called of Christ in the name of Jesus. So we've got our legislative intent, we've got our legislative history, and that's to be looked at when we're attempting to construe or interpret the statute. And one of the interesting things, I know we got kind of a late start, and I'd really like to share this with you guys as well. Um, uh, I know it's getting close to the top of the hour, but if you'll bear with me, um, uh, turn over to um, well, I don't know. Um, I wanted to get into this. Can you all bear with me for another 15 to 20 minutes, everybody, since we got kind of a late start? Can we do that? I'm good. Um, I'm going to have to go with right now. Okay. All right, well, I'll go ahead and continue, and it'll be there there in the archives then. All right, Russell? Okay. Yeah, I had to put Mother in the hospital. Oh, you did. Come home for a little while. Yeah, she got that UTI infection and didn't know what it was. Okay. So I think all right. I think they got that prescribed and all. So I'll I'll go back and re-listen next time. But all right. Thanks for everything you got. I'll see you later. All right, that sounds good. Yeah, and we'll put her in prayer too. All right, Russell. Good night. Okay. All right. So. Um, So guided by the legislative history and intent, the liberty or the authority delegated as conveyed by Paul in Romans 13, it's not unlimited, but it's clearly limited by the power and the authority that Paul is speaking of. Um, Righteousness or obedience, uh, good, that's to be commended. Unrighteousness and disobedience, evil is to be judged, condemned, and punished. 
that leads us directly back to Genesis chapter 3. As I said, by the law written on our hearts, Hebrews 8.8. 8. You know, a new covenant I've made with him. <clears throat> um, we know to reward a civil administrative leader with an annual salary acting outside of his delegated authority under Jesus Christ first is wrong. Instinctively, we know this. So why would Paul intend to convey that one is to reward the unrighteous deeds of a civil chief any more than he would want us to reward an ecclesiastical chief or elder? That would be completely contrary to the legislative history and the legislative intent. And honestly, if you really think about it and you're honest about Romans 13, specifically verses 1 to 7, you've got to confess that Paul declares and conveys the clearest form and function of Christian self-government under the authority of the one and only potentate. The I am, the self-existent one. God's divine immutable laws and the morality of it, it maximizes survival. That's a burden that's easy to bear. So it escapes me how if it's professed that the Bible is the word of God, isn't it a bit contrary to the legislative history or the precedent for God to authorize unlimited obedience to civil administrators? And thus, aren't we required to condone every thought of his evil heart? That is, the civil administrator? To me, as I said, one of my axioms, what am I being required to believe? If I read that passage that way, what am I being required to believe? I'm making God divided against himself, requiring the righteous essentially to join with and participate in the unfruitful works of unrighteousness. I don't know that there's any other way to look at it. I just, I just don't. Turn to the book of John, chapter 19. This is one of the other thoughts I wanted to share with you because it's on the same line of authority and so forth. Authority, exousia, number 1849. It's used in Matthew 8, 5 through 9, specifically verse 9. Matthew 9, 2 through 6, specifically verse 6. Uh, Luke 11, 31 and 2. Matthew 28, 18 to 22. Those are all additional areas where that exousia, the authority. And look at this one here in John 19.11 Jesus answered thou could have no power at all against me 
that same word power there is exousia, authority. Thou could have no authority at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivers me unto thee has the greater sin. Now I can't tell you how long and for how long many of us have read that scripture and have thought and have actually probably even been taught that essentially what Jesus is conveying there is that when he's speaking to Pilate here, he's saying that you could have no power against me except it is given to you from above, meaning by God himself. But the context of the scripture doesn't bear that out. Because continuing, it says, therefore, he, and I underline that word he in my Bible to make it sure that I recognize he, who is the he? He that delivered me unto thee has the greater sin. Well, he was talking to Pilate, so Pilate certainly didn't deliver him. It wasn't Judas betraying him with a kiss that delivered him. Who is this he that had the greater sin? Who gave Pilate this authority? That's a question that I felt like needed to be answered. Who gave Pilate this authority? I'm going to read from the Arco volume, beginning in Pilate's report. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, the Arco volume was a publication that was uh, a compendium of various reports that have been in the Vatican. And there was a gentleman that told the story of how he came across it, and he has printed those. Um, it tells how the records were discovered. Um, then uh, Constantine's letter in regard to having 50 copies of the scriptures written and bound. Jonathan's interview with Bethlehem Shepherds. Um, Gamaliel's interview with Joseph and Mary. Uh, the report of Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin concerning the execution of Jesus. The report of Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Valeus's notes, uh, Herod Antipater's defense before the Roman Senate in regard to his con conduct at Bethlehem, Herod Antipater's defense before the Roman Senate in regard to the execution of John the Baptist. So there's a, a number of reports that are in this little book titled The Arco Volume. And beginning in <clears throat> uh, on page 137, uh, How do you Pilot spell that, report. Doug? Arco, A-R-C-H-K-O, volume. Arco, volume. Thank you. And uh, uh, I, I think, Rich, um, artisan publishers, um, if you go to Artisan Publishers, I think um, Ray Capp's site, you know, he's now deceased, but it's still being kept up. I think they have the Arco volume on that. And if it's not there, um, 
Uh, who else? Um, well, I'll think of it. So if you have trouble coming up with it, uh, it's only usually through our, you know, the Israelite uh, sources of, of people that are still uh, doing these, uh, keeping these books in print. Um, <clears throat> Herod smiled maliciously and saluting me with ironical respect departed. Now this is Pilate's report. So Herod and Pilate have had communication and Pilate is departing, not doing anything about the situation. Then Pilate records. Hold on, I'm going to do something before I get into this. All right. The city was overflowing with a tumultuous populace clamoring for the death of the Nazarene. My emissaries informed me that the treasure of the temple had been employed in bribing the people. The danger was pressing. A Roman centurion had been insulted. I wrote to the prefect of Syria for a hundred foot soldiers and as many cavalry. He declined. I saw myself alone with a handful of veterans in the midst of a rebellious city, too weak to suppress an uprising and having no choice left but to tolerate it. They had seized upon Jesus. And the seditious rabble, although they had nothing to fear from the praetorium, believing, as their leaders had told them, that I winked at their sedition, continued, vociferating, crucify him, crucify him. Three powerful parties had combined together at that time against Jesus. First, the Herodians and the Sadducees, whose seditious conduct seemed to have proceeded from double motives. They hated the Nazarene and were impatient of the Roman yoke. They never forgave me for having entered the holy city with banners that bore the image of the Roman emperor. And although in this instance I had committed a fatal error, yet the sacrilege did not appear less heinous in their eyes. Another grievance also rankled in their bosoms. I had proposed to employ a part of the treasure of the temple in erecting edifices for public use. My proposal was scorned. The Pharisees were the avowed enemies of Jesus. They cared not for the government. They bore with bitterness the severe reprimands which the Nazarene for three years had been continually giving them wherever he went. Timid and too weak to act by themselves, they had embraced the quarrels of the Herodians and the Sadducees. Besides these three parties, I had to contend against the reckless and profligate populace always ready to join a sedition and to profit by the disorder and confusion that resulted therefrom. Jesus was dragged before the high priest and condemned to death. It was then that the high priest Caiaphas performed a divisory act of submission. He sent his prisoner to me 
to confirm his condemnation and secure his execution. I answered him that as Jesus was a Galilean, the affair came under Herod's jurisdiction and ordered him to be sent hither. The wily Tetrarch professed humility and protesting his deference to the lieutenant of Caesar. He committed the fate of the man to my hands. He's speaking of Herod. Soon my palace assumed the aspect of a besieged citadel. Every moment increased the number of the malcontents. Jerusalem was inundated with crowds from the mountains of Nazareth. All Judea appeared to be pouring into the city. I had taken a wife from among the Gauls who had pretended to see into futurity. Weeping and throwing herself at my feet, she said to me, Beware, beware, and touch not that man, for he is holy. Last, last night I saw him in a vision. He was walking on the waters. He was flying on the wings of the wind. He spoke to the tempest and to the fishes of the lake. All were obedient to him. Behold, the torrent in Mount Kedron flows with blood, and the statutes of Caesar are filled with Gemini. The columns of the interior have given away. The sun is veiled in the morning like a vestal in the tomb. Ah, Pilate, evil awaits thee. If thou wilt not listen to the vows of thy wife, dread the curse of a Roman senate, dread the frowns of Caesar. So she's imploring him, as the scripture records, not to do anything with Jesus. By this time the marble stair groaned under the weight of the multitude. The Nazarene was brought back to me. I proceeded to the halls of justice, followed by my guard, and asked the people in a severe tone what they demanded. The death of the Nazarene was the reply. For what crime? He has blasphemed. He has prophesied the ruin of the temple. He calls himself the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of the Judeans. Roman justice, said I, punishes not such offenses with death. Crucify him, crucify him, cried the relentless rabble. The vociferations of the infuriated mob shook the place to its foundation. There was but one who appeared to be calm in the midst of the vast multitude. It was the Nazarene. After many fruitless attempts to protect him from the fury of his merciless persecutors, <clears throat> I adopted a measure which at the moment appeared to me to be the only one that could save his life. I proposed, as it was their custom, to deliver a prisoner on such occasions, to release Jesus and let him free that he might be the scapegoat, as they called it. But they said Jesus must be crucified. I spoke to them of the inconsistency of their course as being incompatible with their laws, showing that no criminal judge could pass sentence on a criminal unless he had fasted one whole day, and that the sentence must have the consent of the Sanhedrin and the signature of the president of that court, that no criminal could be executed on the same day as his sentence was fixed, and the next day, on the day of his execution, the Sanhedrin was required to review the whole proceeding, also according to their law. <clears throat> so here you have Pilate 
giving his report to Caesar and saying, I even went to their own law and told them, this is totally contrary to your own law. <coughs> also according to their law, a man was stationed at the door of the court with a flag and another a short way off on horseback to cry the name of the criminal and his crime and the names of his witnesses and to know if anyone could testify in his favor. And the prisoner on his way to execution had the right to turn back three times and to plead any new thing in his favor. I urged all these pleas, hoping they might awe them into subjection, but they still cried, crucify him, crucify him. I then ordered Jesus to be scourged, hoping this would satisfy them, but it only increased their fury. I called for a basin and washed my hands in the presence of the clamorous multitude, thus testifying that in my judgment, Jesus of Nazareth had done nothing deserving of death, but in vain. It was his life those wretches thirsted for. Often in our civil commotions have I witnessed the furious anger of the multitude, but nothing could be compared to what I witnessed on this occasion. It might have been truly said that all the phantoms of the infernal regions had assembled at Jerusalem. The crowd appeared not to walk, but to be borne off and whirled as a vortex, rolling along in living waves from the portals of the Praetorium, even unto Mount Zion, with howling screams, shrieks, and vociferations such as were never heard in the seditions of the Pannonia or in the tumults of the Forum. End quote. Doesn't that just give you so much more of a window into what was going on at the time? Again, this is not scripture. This is, as I say, um, it was found, these records were found in the Vatican. And a guy went to the Vatican and he pulled these records and put them in a book. Um, feeling that it would somehow be helpful or that it would somehow, you know, be beneficial to to someone. And I just marvel at the way that it's written about what was going on there. Now, as I say, it's not scripture, whether it can be believed or not. I got to tell you, it sounds pretty believable to me in accordance with the scripture but I have no you know, witness that these records are indeed true. You know, The Vatican holds a lot of stuff that they've kept from us. So it is what it is. But what I wanted to do as we were looking at John 19.11, I wanted to clear something up for us is that somebody had to have this greater sin. And Jesus conveyed that to Pilate. He said, you hold no authority, exousia. You hold no power against me. Again, the word against is cat, K-A-T, number 2596. It's conditional. You have no power against the I am. If, you know, you had, this, this all had to happen. 
he had to die, but he had to die sinless and blameless. There was nothing that he did. They would not be able to say, well, if he hadn't attacked the Caesar, attacked Caesar, then, you know, he wouldn't have got his head cut off or, you know, he wouldn't have been crucified. He had to literally be the blameless, spotless, sacrificial lamb for Israel to take away Israel's sin, to reunite with her former husband, the God of Jacob Israel. And I just find that it's really interesting to consider that word he in that scripture. That had to be Caiaphas. And he gave that authority according to Pilate's own words there. He gave that authority completely completely outside of their own law. And see, that's what we find going on here in America. We see all this quote-unquote unconstitutionality going on. Well, they're a law unto themselves, people. That's why we can't make our own laws. We have to use God's laws because when we execute righteously, we have no blame when it comes to the judgment. We have no blame whatsoever. We will be judged righteous because we have executed on the will of the Father. And as soon as Christians in this creation of God's all over the world can recognize they have this power and this authority already in their hands, and they, ex- they are clearly authorized to exercise on that power and that authority day by day, we will have change in the world. But as long as man continues to operate, and it's almost like they're laughing at us because <clears throat> look at all the things that they do against us. And a Christian still goes hand in hand with them to the to their usury banks, to their usury practices, holds them up and says, look at the Jews, God's chosen people, yet they're the ones who do all the the international banking. They're the ones who are in charge of all the banking houses. They're the ones that have been practicing usury against the people all over the world, mainly Christian nations. Uh, spoiling them of the blessings that God has allowed. And it's just, it's amazing, as I say. And uh, I've been wanting to share this with the fellowship here, this message that I delivered at the gathering in, in Missouri. And last week was the first part. And This was the second part, and I'm sorry that I'm in such bad shape. Um, And it's it's nothing more than a a little cold that came on on Saturday. And um, I'm just a little congested is all. I have no, no, you know, it basically lasted for a couple days, and I've just got this congestion that's persisted here. When I'm up moving around, it's fine, but it's like, you know, the blood vessels and stuff, 
I guess you sit down and you lay down and stuff like that. They really, they really do it. So I apologize for the way it's going to sound, but uh, it is what it is. So I hope you enjoyed it, and um, uh, I know we got it away really late and everything, and uh, uh, let's. Let's close in some prayer, and uh, we'll sign off then for the night. Um, you're welcome, Melissa. I'm glad you were here to enjoy it. Uh, Melissa was joining here uh, uh, as well on, on the Internet, and she said she enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, it's all God's Word. It's, it has nothing to do with me. Uh, I just happened to be the one that, that opened your eyes to it and delivered it, perhaps. So, Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Uh, for the wonder of the technology that allows us to get together. We know, Father, that where two or more are gathered in your name, you're there in our midst, and we thank you for that. And Father, we pray, believing, trusting. As you said, pray, believing. We pray, Father, for uh, Russell's mother and uh, the urinary tract uh, issue that's going on. Father, you know the health. Uh, needs that she has, and so we put them in, uh, up to you. We thank you for uh, seeing and, and dealing with it and giving her all that she needs to help. And, Father, we've looked to your word for the things you've given us in your word for heal, healing and health in those areas, and I'm sure Russell and Cindy are working on that for them as well. Uh, but sometimes these things get out of hand and people get scared and, and immediately run to the the doctors, but Father, we just put it in your hands and we say if she's going to be in those uh, uh, people's hands, that they be Christians. They be people that want to help her. And so we trust in that and we put it all up to you in trust and faith, believing that you're going to get her through this uh, in good shape. Father, we continue to thank you for the blessings you provided for Hannah and uh, continued progression that she's had. Um, Father, we just thank you for all the help that is proceeding out for those in the uh, in the Beltway. Uh, I don't mean the Beltway of Washington, but in the central part of the country that have been just ravaged by that tornado. And, and Father, we just put them all in prayer. Pray for their continued uh, hearts to not be troubled. And that things uh, will come back to uh, a restoration for all of them. We thank you for the outpouring of your people that are pouring forth goods and services and monies. Uh, we thank you. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to see more benefit of the things that are happening and hear more about it in the weeks to come. So, Father, we pray that you continue to bless us from the virus that's been working around, that, that COVID. And uh, thank you for all that you've done in revealing the truth to us. Thank you for all those people that have been stepping up as health practitioners and not standing for the nonsense and pushing back and uh, demanding to treat their patients uh, properly. Um, and so we just thank you for all of their efforts. And Father, I pray for these uh, that continue to try to do right in riding the ship in this country. And Father, we need a lot of help all over the world. So we continue to put these concerns 
before you and pray that you'll continue to open eyes, turn us back to your authority, turn us back to the guidance, the instruction, the precedence, the history, the legislative intent that's all here in your word, and allow us to exercise it against the workers of iniquity, that people would see and learn and uh, would continue to teach others. Thank you for all these things. We ask it in the blessed name of the Holy (coughs) Son, and thank you. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. All right, everybody. As you can tell, I need to get off of here. (laughs) But uh, hopefully it wasn't too bad. So thanks for everybody joining, and we'll catch up with you next week, and hopefully we'll be in a little better condition. All right. Thanks a lot. Good night, all. Good night. Yep. Good night.